Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, the 12th chapter. <clears throat> we will read verses 1 and 2. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of each heart here be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul, as we've said for a couple weeks now, has turned from doctrine, from what is true, to practice what should be true. And we are entering the second part of this letter to the Church of Rome, and it comprises chapters 12, 13, 14, and part of chapter 15. Many Bible students refer to the first part of the book as the indicative, and the second part of the book as the imperative. And indicative and imperative are what are designated moods or modes in grammar. And, of course, all of us get excited when we hear the word grammar. I just love grammar. It's something I've never heard anybody say. In English, we have somewhere between three and five moods or modes of communication, and two of them are the indicative and the imperative. Think of a mode of communication as your presentation, your posture, your the way you're coming across, all right? You're, are your legs crossed? Are your legs rigid? Are you standing? Are you sitting? And so there are moods or modes of communication, and two of them I want to open up today are the indicative and the imperative. The indicative mood or mode of communication declares something to be factual, something to be true. And so in Scripture, most centrally, The indicative is used to state something that God himself has said or done, or something he's saying or doing, or something he says that he will say or do. The imperative mood, or the imperative mode of communication, makes a request or calls for something to be done. And in scripture, the imperatives communicated to man flow from the indicatives. This is true, therefore, do this, all right? Now, about this time, you're, you're, you're kind of like, okay, move on, right? And I know that, but I want to say something intensely to you, which is, do not take the indicative for granted. Do not take the indicative for granted. Because the entire world we live in is a conspiracy against the indicative. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? And I say, well, all of you are quite happy with me describing to you what God says and who God is and what what the doctrine of God is. You don't mind getting truth. Where you really arch your back and stiffen your neck is when you're told to do something. That's where we all get cantankerous and nasty. What gives you the right to tell me what to do, right? That's the way we all are. And you say, well, why would you say that's the way we all are? And I say, this is really deep. You ready? You know, I am a deep man. Why would we all resent being told what to do? All right, I'm deep. So raise yourself up to a high level to receive this truth. Because you're an American. (laughs) The reason we don't like to be told what to do 
is because we're Americans. In fact, that might be a good title for the sermon this week. You, sweet, sweet boy, are an American. And America was founded on the principle of what? Don't, 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 don't you dare tread on me. And so from the beginning, the character, the personality of Americans, are you ready? This is a joke. I came up with it the first sermon. The character of Americans from the very beginning has been that we all are a real pain. Does anybody get it? You got it. Good. Excellent. Thomas Paine. <laughs> okay? Common sense. And so deep in the psyche, deep in the personality, deep in the posture, deep in the mood, deep in everything we are as Americans, is we are all a real pain. And it's hard to lead us. And because we're a real pain, that means we don't like to be told what to do. And because we don't like to be told what to do, our leaders don't tell us what to do. Our leaders will bend over backwards trying to avoid telling us what to do. They'll call it behaviorism. They'll call it Spockism, Dr. Spock. You know, we have all kinds of names in child rearing and in counseling and everything for avoiding telling anybody what to do. I mean, I've watched mothers sometimes, you won't believe the lengths they'll go to avoid telling their children what to do. And it's just so tiresome, you know? It's like, dude, would you just say it, you know? Stop implying it, please don't imply it. Say it. And so what did I say? I said, do not take the imperative for granted. The Apostle Paul, in each of his letters, moves from the truth to the command. The Apostle Paul moves from truth to the imperative, from the indicative to the imperative, okay? That's what we're doing this morning. And in the church in America today, the imperative is dead. In American pulpits today, there is no more. Would you turn me down, please? There is no more imperative. There's only the indicative. Now, that's a pretty bodacious claim, isn't it? How do I prove it? Well, one of the ways to prove it is how popular conferences were for the last 50, 60 years. And what is a conference but an objective, like, SCSI drive, USB 3, fire, you know, it's it's like a download of truth. That's what a conference is. A conference is not hortatory. A conference is not imperative. A conference, I mean, the most you'll get in a, I mean, the the, the whole first section of Romans has almost no commands. Did you realize that? And so... It's like America decided that it loved the first half of Romans. And then it just gave nothing but the first half of Romans over and over and over again. And so a lot of the people I've led through the years absolutely adore R.C. Sproul. All right? Um, You know, they listen to his tapes, they watch his videos, and absolutely every year they go down to his conference at Ligonier. And my friend Paul Salehammer is the MC and... There's R.C. and Vesta holding forth in their court, you know, and and all the rich people, especially from Wheaton, they go down to Ligonier, Bob goes down to Ligonier, and they put their mouth back and they go, ah, and they have all this indicative, and they get a fix on the indicative for a year. You with me? But R.C. Sproul, R.C. is not going to tell you what to do or what not to do. He's going to tell you what to think and what not to think. 
And furthermore, even if he told you what to do or what not to do, you wouldn't take it personally because you don't know him and he doesn't know you. I remember when I started preaching and my dad had spent his life being a speaker going around the country, million miler with United. And everybody loved my father and they'd have him come in and speak and they'd read his books and, and so I started preaching. And after about six months, I said to dad, you know, dad, <laughs> you know the difference between you and me? And he said, no, what, son? And I said, well, the difference is that when you get done writing something, you mail it. And then it gets published. And then it, the worst that can possibly happen to you is a nasty letter shows up in our mailbox. But when I preach, as soon as I'm done, I go to the door. And there they are. And I can't get away from them, and they pay my salary. Do not take the imperative for granted. Do not take the imperative for granted. Because the imperative has been removed from the church in America. So going back to R.C., Several times I was talking to him and I said, R.C., listen, would you please do a conference at Ligonier on sexuality? Another time I wrote him a letter and I said, R.C., would you write a book on the heresy of feminism? And so I was kind of like a dripping faucet with the dude, you know. But he put up with me. He's a good dude, you know. Finally, he said to me, you know, Tim, no, I... I'm not going to do what you asked me to do, but I tell you what, we'll do an issue of table talk on feminism. And so they did the issue of table talk on feminism. Well, then I was at a conference up in Chicago, and I, we ran into each other in the foyer, and he said, hey, Tim, he said, you know that issue we did on feminism? I said, yeah. He said, you know something, Tim. He said, that issue had more negative response than any issue we've ever done of table talk. And I looked at Darcy and I went, no. <laughs> Welcome to my world, Darcy. <laughs> I didn't do that. Do not take the imperative for granted. Do you know that in this church, many people in this community call us a cult? Well, when you're called a cult, you know, and, I, and when I first went in the ministry, I, I, my dad was friends with Martin Marty, and you remember Martin Marty was at University of Chicago, he had this whole cult project. It was like multi-volume, and it was like he was studying cults and fundamentalism, you know? He was the dean of uh, church historians in America. And he wasn't at Yale. That was a surprise. Anyhow, Martin Marty, having that volume and dealing with cults and fundamentalism made me think a lot about the nature of cults. And so all through my ministry or my work, I have thought about, okay, what is it that causes people to think that people are fundamentalists or to think that they're a cult? Well, do you know that there's, there's almost nothing that will get you more quickly labeled a cult than what? The imperative. <laughs> the imperative. Because you will get a reputation as being a church that tells people what they should and shouldn't do. Think about it. And no church should ever tell people what they should and shouldn't do. I mean, if, if the county, the poor, the poor, if the poor county health officer shouldn't tell people what to do, then certainly a pastor shouldn't tell people what to do. And so if you try to be a church that applies scripture to people's lives in a godly way, you will be accused of being controlling 
and they will say you're a cult. All right? So let's think for a second, what exactly is it that you would tell people to do or not to do? Well, like for instance, if you were to tell them that they should not lie, bear false witness, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Certainly that wouldn't get you accused of being a cult, right? That's not controlling, right? I mean, they've removed the Ten Commandments from any public place, any public government-owned place, but they're entirely okay with me standing here saying to you, don't lie, right? Because I'm a pastor, and if I can't repeat the Ten Commandments in the safety and the privacy of a worship service, that would seem to be overreach, right? Okay, okay, okay. But if I were to stray even slightly beyond the literal words of the Ten Commandments, do not bear false witness, and were to say to you, you know that when you say something and somebody misunderstands you and thinks that you're saying something they agree with, and you keep silent, you know you lied. When somebody misinterprets what you're saying and says something that shows they misinterpret it, you don't correct them, you're lying. You know that, right? And all of a sudden, it's like you're a cult figure. Because you didn't just say, thou shalt not bear false witness. Don't take the imperative for granted. No shepherd has ever been able simply to stick to the fences and to guard the fences, and to tell himself he's being a faithful shepherd. If you've ever read the larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism on the Ten Commandments, you've learned the word synecdoche, okay? We have moods in grammar, and now we have synecdoches in interpretation and hermeneutics. And synecdoches are when there are a number of ways synecdoches can work, but they're when you take a, a, a small thing and, and you open it up in such a way that it represents many more things. Well, if you've ever read the larger catechism on the Ten Commandments, you realize that the Westminster Divines opened up every commandment of Scripture in ways that you've never thought about. One of the ways they open up the command, thou shalt not kill, is by saying that this commandment teaches us that we must provide the necessaries of life. And that if we do not provide the care and necessities of life to an individual, we become a murderer. Well, when I say that, you think, well, wait a second, that's not what it says. It just says don't kill. Yeah, but if you are a man bearing the image of God, a woman bearing the image of God, you do not help someone who needs help to live, you refuse to give them the help they need to live. It's entirely in your capacity to give them the help they need to live, and you refuse to do it for any reason. You have violated the Sixth Commandment. And you go, okay, well, if old guys said it, I guess it's right. Right? If old guys said it, I guess it's right. Okay. That means that you may not withdraw food and water from your mother when she's old and has had a stroke and is incontinent. And you go, see, I told you, he's a cult leader. Do not take the imperative for granted. Do not take the imperative for granted. There are cases where a pastor will be persecuted and fired for the indicative. But nine times out of ten, he will be persecuted and fired for the imperative. And you say, well, yeah, but that's because he's controlling and stubborn and he's obnoxious. And it's, it's not what he said, but the way he said it. And so would you please explain to me precisely what way should Adam Spady and I say to the family? That does not want to feed 
No imminent or inevitable death. None at all. Exactly what way should we say to them that they must not have starvation and dehydration be the cause of the death of their mother? How, how do I say that in a way that causes people to accept that? Do not take the imperative for granted. Now you could imagine that I could go on a long time about this. It's like my whole life, this is my life. I'm supposed to sit there and be deaf, dumb, and blind Tommy. You know, it's like a stupid pinball wizard, you know? And just connive at your sin, stroke you where you itch, you know? You know? Do not take this church for granted. Because, see, this isn't about me. I'm deep into the downslope. Okay? Deep, deep, deep into the downslope. I'd be gone. But I am who I am because of my sheep. God gave me the sheep who demanded the imperative. Uh, do you understand this? <laughs> Don't take the imperative for granted. Yes, you're an American. And Americans are a real pain. <laughs> I get such a kick out of that pun. <laughs> it's funny. I think it's funny. You know, Americans don't tread on me. Americans are all about resisting tyranny and tyrants. Americans know where their liberty should be. Americans know what freedom is. And if you want to have a real eye-opening experience, you go back and read Edmund Burke about the French Revolution and apply it to today and realize how immediately... The new boss is the same as the old boss. <laughs> My all-time favorite rock and roll song. Won't get fooled again. That's what all the conservatives in this country are saying now. We won't get fooled again. Tip your hat to the new constitution. Take up the new revolution. We're libertarians now. After Trump, we know what this country is. We've been woke in a conservative direction. We done been woke. And we won't get fooled again. And so nobody's going to tell me what to do. Nobody's going to tell you what to do. And nobody's going to tell me what not to do. And that's even nastier than telling me what to do. Because the minute you tell me what not to do, I'm back in the Garden of Eden, and I've only had one tree. The fruit of one tree refused me. And doggone it, that's the tree I want. That's the fruit I'm going to eat. Remember Augustine on that in the Confessions? Stealing from the pear tree just because it wasn't theirs. And then they threw the fruit out. That's who we are. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what not to do. I'm an American. Well, that's the church today. The church today is convinced it's found a principle of godliness to be belligerent about, but all it's found is American political psychology. I'm sorry, but I'm going to keep going. <laughs> I'm on a roll, <laughs> you know. Now, let me talk about weight for a second, okay? I've had a woman in this church come to me and ask me to pray for her to lose weight. And you would think if I was a man of God and a pastor, and I love my sheep, and somebody who was overweight came to me and asked me to pray that they'd lose weight, what would you think I would say? Well, of course, I'll pray for you to lose weight. But you know what I said to her? 
nope, I won't pray that you'll lose weight. Now, why would I say that? It's shocking, isn't it? I must not love my sheep. And I have to say, she was scandalized. And she said, well, why not? And I said, well, because there are only three books that are written and published in America. One is a book about dogs. One is a book about Abraham Lincoln. And one is a diet book. And I just don't think that God's Holy Spirit has the same agenda that America has. And I don't want you processing your spirituality through your weight. Now, why would I say that? I love the woman. I'll be hanged if we are going to be a politicized, moralized, conformed to the world church. When I hear people having fits over weight, what I think is they're in the Twiggy generation. Do you know what the Twiggy generation? You remember the model from London who was a twig? That's why she was called Twiggy. And so all across the Western world, the sexual fantasy is women who have parts of their body that are big, but they have to be small. Do you follow? In other words, they have to be skinny. You understand this. And that's how we decide whether we love God and whether we're growing in holiness? I mean, honestly, people. Honestly. You go into any art museum and you look at the masters, and what do you see? A bunch of fat women. I mean, honestly, that's what you see. Guess what? A woman who's fruitful becomes even bigger. And in Africa, when I went to Africa, you remember this, David Wagner said to me, by the way, over here, don't make jokes about your weight because people will think you're proud. I'm kidding. I'm not kidding you. So I tried to not talk about my weight in Africa. In Africa, they look at a woman who is a wife and a mother and is heavy, and they're envious of her because it's obvious that her husband has made her happy. Don't you give me your politics and claim it's holiness. Don't you give me the belligerence of American social psychology, of American don't tread on me, Thomas Paine, common sense. Don't you give me that and you tell me that that's faith in Jesus Christ. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. No. I recognize it. And then you take the American political psyche and you bring it into Baptist churches, and you've got critical mass. Because Baptists are the contrarians of the Protestant Reformation. They're the ones that are most belligerent against civil authority, most belligerent against ecclesiastical authority. Okay, come on. If you've done your history, you know what I'm telling you is true. You know, this is a Baptist pastor here, so he's giving me street cred. Yeah, and so you've already got critical mass with American political theory, and then you get Baptists clomped onto it, and then put it in the South. Oh, 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 oh my goodness. What's the South like? It's still fighting the Civil War. It has seen the destruction of states' rights. And it is resistant to centralized authority. Are you all with me? And I'm the guy that was with Brian Bailey, I think it was Brian, and Charlie Dugdale, and we were in Philadelphia for Joe Sobrin's wake, okay, he was Roman Catholic, and so we went to the museum that has the Declaration of Independence. There was a guy that was 60 years old, and he was the interpreter employed by the federal government in a uniform to show you that 
the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and the Constitution. And I went up to this dignified officer of the federal government, and I said to him, sir, can you tell me what the Tenth Amendment is? And he said, no. No. What's my point? My point is, today, the church perfectly represents half of the United States of America politically. The church is angry. The church is belligerent. The church has no respect for authority. The church is saying, don't tread on me. The church is saying, I know better. And what pastor do you think is fool enough to go against that spirit of the age? Your politics is not Christian faith. You may be right politically. But I have a real good nose for people who conflate Christian faith with political theory. And I will not have it. I will not have it. I will not pray for her to lose weight. And I will not honor your hatred for authority. It is not Christian. Now listen. That does not mean that I don't see the tyranny of the federal government. (laughs) I've spent my life pulling my hair out about the decimation of the balance of power at the federal level. I mean, I could give you a lesson, those of you who are angry at me now, I could give you a lesson. You don't have nearly enough information to have the convictions you have, and I will help you have more information. This is not about political theory. It's about what it means to not be conformed to this world. I look at you who are from our nation, China, and I carry you in my heart. I do carry you in my heart. But the first thing you have to do is you have to discipline your commitment to the nation of China. Because if you will not discipline your love of your fatherland, you will not begin to know Jesus Christ. And you're good at recognizing the lies and manipulation of the United States of America, but somehow Chinese seem incapable of knowing their own history and recognizing how awful things have been done in China. I mean, awful. You look at everybody's support for Putin in Russia, and you look at the the cult of Stalin, Stalin, that has been popular in Russia the last 20 years. And you go, are you serious? Papa Joe? (laughs) Are you serious? But of course, we're Americans, and so we can look down on them all, right? Right? You know, because we've done it right. And we only slaughter one, two million unborn children every year. And who knows how many old people and feeble people and infanticide right over here in Bloomington Hospital. And we look down on Russia and China? Remember, we had a guy from, uh, from Rwanda come over and preach to us at my former church. He comes over and he says, you people, you're so upset about us macheting to death 700,000 to a million people. In three months' time, our neighbors, our brothers-in-law. He said, but what about you and, and all the babies you slaughter every single year? Do not take the imperative for granted. 
you, like me, are stubborn. You. You don't like your husband telling you what to do. Come on, be truthful. You're Presbyterian, he's Baptist. I mean, what woman who's Presbyterian wants a Baptist telling her what to do? Do not be conformed to this world. Dwight L. Moody once said that the Holy Spirit finds the thickest wall of our hearts and breaks through it. That's called sanctification. And I am completely in favor of men and women in this church becoming uh, going on to the payroll of government, okay? I'm completely committed to Adam being a physician in the most difficult circumstances. And Brian Bailey being the budget director for Pence under the most difficult circumstances. And Ted being on the appellate court. And these are men that have been in our church. But let me tell you something. Do you think that I defer to them when they want to fudge for the sake of their party? Huh? Huh? Do you think I tell them that they can just go ahead and do what their party requires them to do on homosexuality? Case of first impression on homosexual marriage? That judges should just go along with the party and follow precedent? Well, it was first impression, so there wasn't precedent yet. Come on, guys. Who actually is Lord? Why does the Apostle Paul tell us that we should present our bodies a living sacrifice which is holy and acceptable to the Lord? And that this is our reasonable service of worship. Why does he tell us to present our bodies a living sacrifice? Well, he tells us because Jesus gave his body as a sacrifice for us. And by nature, it stands to reason that if the one who purchased us from, from hell and death has given himself up for us, that we should present our bodies a living sacrifice, right? I mean, it's only logical, right? And the one who has given his body for us and his blood, right? The one who's given his blood for us, that man should have us asking him what he wants us to do. We should present our body a living sacrifice to him. We should be under his authority. And so when I was writing the manuscript for the sermon, I said, we should acknowledge that he is our boss, that he is our foreman, that he is our what? Lord, that he is our master, right, right, right? That he is our king, right, right? And of course, the next thing I should have written is what? That he is our president. And I thought, oh, woe is me. I can't write that because then everybody will stomp him with their combat boots. I can't use a name for Jesus that is so trampled on by the people of God. You know, who's going to respect and submit to the authority of a president? So I use an exotic thing. King, king, over there, across the pond. King, king. Oh. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and, so in other words, this flows directly. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, and do not be conformed to this world. 
do not be conformed to this world. I am not cynical, and I do love, and I love a lot. And I recognize beauty. And I recognize beauty in Democrats who are pro-abortion, pro-homosexuality, and pro-President Biden. It doesn't discourage me when worldlings are worldly. What really discourages me is when Christians are conformed to this world. Because we have freedom in Christ. We don't have to live in bondage. We don't have to live in the stultifying, oppressive world of Facebook where everything is caught and nothing is taught. Where truths can never be longer than 25 words. And people think they're deep because they just read 25 words and then put it up on their own blog, their own Facebook page. Send it out as tweets. And so over the course of the last couple of months, the elders have asked a group of us to write a statement on COVID. And this last week, we finished it. And it's now approved, and it will be released. But the problem is that it's nine pages. Nine pages. 4,500 words. And you say, well, that's too long. And I say, listen... Do you have any idea how many words you read every day? But, but the problem is the words you read are trite and trivial and superficial and they're snack food. Everybody intellectually is living off Cheetos. <laughs> and we want our truth given to us in, in a palatable form. And what I mean by palatable is sugar. Last night I went over to the cheap Chinese and got some dinner and then, and then I had heard a man the night before, a Chinese man, order something that I had never ordered there before and so I thought, you know something, I'm going to order that. You know, it's the kind of thing that you never order because you just think you don't need that, you're already fat. But I thought, you know, if a Chinese man can order that at the end of his dinner, I can too. And so I ordered some of these little uh, buns or rolls. And, oh, I smelled them on the way over here. I ate here last night, and I, oh, oh. So I was a good boy, and I ate my food first, broccoli chicken. And then I ate the egg roll, and that was good because it had lots of sugar on it from the sauce. You know, dip it in the sauce. You know. And then I opened up this styro. Oh, oh, I'd never had them before. And they had been baked recently, and they were soft. They were moist, and they just tasted so good. And I ate about four of them. And there were about another eight, six. And then I looked at the bottom, and at the bottom of the container was all this white stuff. And I looked at the white stuff, and I thought to myself, yes! So I took a bite. Then I licked my thumb. I pushed it down in the white... Yeah, it was sugar. And so it was a sugar-like donut kind of roll thing, and then more sugar. And so the rest of them, I used a spoon, and I scraped the bottom, and I got the sugar, and I ate the sugar, and that's Facebook. It is, that's Facebook. Facebook has not an ounce more value then that sugar put on those sugar donuts. It is perfectly designed to stupefy you. 
And so our nine-page document, you're going to go, oh, 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 couldn't you shorten it? You know, preaching should never be more than 20 minutes. Don't you know that? People can't listen after 20 minutes. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not let Facebook and Twitter and Instagram stupefy you. Don't do it. Because God's people are people of the word and people of the book. And the highest literacy rate the world has ever had is colonial America because every parent was determined their child would read God's word. And you know who are the really interesting people in this world? There's absolutely nothing interesting about Tim Cook. Nothing. Nothing. And there certainly is nothing interesting about Joe Biden, President Biden. And really, there isn't, well, never mind, I'll get you angry. But, I mean, there wasn't much interesting about President Trump. Entertaining. It was fun to watch. And we deserved him. And I voted for him. Don't worry. (laughs) You know what is really entertaining? What's really entertaining is a Christian who knows the Bible. Far and away, the most interesting people I've ever known are godly, older Christians who have spent their life reading Scripture. They know it backwards and forwards, and they have just the weirdest takes on everything that happens. Have you ever noticed this? Now, you want, you want to test it out? I can tell you who to test it out with. Does anybody know who I'm going to say? You're going to think I'm going to say Tim Wagner. Rita's dead, so she was drop-dead gorgeous intellectually because she knew the Bible inside and out. She didn't just know the Bible, but she knew which side of the Bible that particular and which column and which place on the column. She was brilliant. The person to try this out with is Pastor Carell. Talk to Pastor Carell. And he has, it happens every week in our pastor's meetings, he has the weirdest takes on things. And you're just constantly agog over the interesting observations he makes from Scripture. Every pastor will tell you this is true. Do not be conformed to this world. How on earth... Are you going to keep this world from pressing you into its mold if you aren't devoted to Scripture? How are you going to do that? But be... Come on, say it. That sounds like a Tim Keller word. You know, it goes right next to flourish and be transformed, you know? You know what the Greek word is? Those of you who like butterflies and cocoons, the Greek word is metamorphosis. Do not be conformed to this world, but be metamorphosized. Completely changed. By what? The renewing of your mind. It's very interesting what Calvin says here. He says, the mind, which is our most excellent part. I like that. The mind, which is our most excellent part, and to which philosophers ascribe the preeminence. They put it at the highest position. That's why Peter Singer says you can kill a newborn child, the philosopher at, uh, at Princeton, because he has the idea that your ability to think and communicate, your intellect, is the essence of your personhood. 
Philosophers always think that, you know? And so nobody has personhood until they're able to have a meaningful communication with others, which any of you that have children under the age of six know that it's, <laughs> as Chesterton says, it's, he, you know, the contribution of kids that age is not entirely epigrammatic, you know? It's not like filled with wisdom and truth. And he says, the philosophers say that the mind has a preeminence. And then he says, they maintain that reason is a queen of utmost wisdom. Now listen to this. He says, Paul, however, pulls her down from her throne and does away with her by teaching us that we must be renewed in mind. And listen, if you look at Scripture and what it says, it says, so this I say, Ephesians 4, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles, as the world also walks in the futility of their what? Of their mind. Being darkened in their what? Understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the Is he the only one that knows that? Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Do you remember the other time the Apostle Paul used that word so notoriously? Do you remember? Speaking to the Areopagus in Athens. In the past, God has overlooked such ignorance. Okay? Because of the hardness of their heart. And so he attributes this Lack of understanding, the futility of the mind, uh, the ignorance, the hardness of their heart is the cause. Isn't that something? And then he says, but you didn't learn Christ in this way. Indeed, you've heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, So you've got the lust of deceit, right? And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of what? Of the truth. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To what end? So that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, there's uh, a text in scripture that I think I've preached on more than any other text. And it's in Hebrews 5, and I want to read it to you. Because this, to me, is the church in America today. The apostle says, concerning him, he's talking about Melchizedek, all right? And he says, concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need, again, for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. For he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature. Who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Be not conformed to this world. Don't get your ire up. Don't get angry. Be not conformed to this world. But, always the positive to pull us from the negative, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. Why? So that you can test and you can approve the things of God. And by the way, those things are what? Those things are Good and acceptable and perfect.
Now, come on. Can we be done with being Americans? Can we be done with being Trumpites? Can we be done with being disrespectful authority? I did not ask if we could be done with political truth and standing for our conscience. But people, there's no need to be disrespectful and principled. And if you want to go back and read, for instance, John Witherspoon's sermon when he signed the Declaration of Independence, the head of Princeton at the time, and you'll see him give his reasons for supporting American independence, and the document absolutely oozes concern for the kingdom of God, for the conversion of sinners, and respect for authority. We do not have to make ourselves a stench in the eyes of the Democrats in order to stand for limited government and for sphere authority and the authority of a mother and father over their children. We don't have to do that. It's entirely possible for us to be Christians and Americans who are conscientiously opposed to the destruction of constitutional limitations on the office of the president and on the office of the judiciary. Okay? But don't you give me this, you know, belligeration and agitation and anger and, and just in a tizzy. The life of the Holy Spirit is a life of trust. And it's freedom because Jesus brings us freedom. I have said a hundred times across my life that I cannot tell you how I could live today if I were not able to read Dead Men. I would just, I, I just could not preach. I couldn't do anything. But every time I get discouraged, I read what anybody wrote before 1950. That's all you have. You don't have to go back any farther than 1950. And then you think, I'm not crazy. They are. I remember this religion editor at uh, Minneapolis Star Tribune calling me and interviewing me on the issue of of men being created by God first, you know, and at some point she says to me, and I've told you this story, but stories that are good are worth repeating. And she says to me, you know, uh, aren't you worried that somebody's going to say that you're a chauvinist? And I laughed and I said, no, I'm not worried about it. It happens all the time. (laughs) Happens all the time. And then I said, but you know what? What makes me happy is that we're the ones that are having babies. (laughs) It was just like, and you could just see the, the wheels turning in her brain. And she knows I just made a demographic statement (laughs) about the future of the Western world. Christians are having babies. But being from Minneapolis, where McAllister is, you know, I then added after a pause, I said, and our children are the National Merit Scholars. And why is that? It's because our children have the liberty to think. And they know scripture. And they have freedom in Christ. You know what the Bible says, don't you? The Bible describes trusting in Jesus as being born again. You know that, right? Born again. And then the Bible says that if any man is in Christ, what? He's a new creation. And then in case we didn't get it, God's Holy Spirit adds, old things are passed away. 
Behold, all things have become new. Do not be conformed to this world. Just don't. It's so boring. But be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Because then you're going to have discernment. And man, people with discernment are so drop-dead gorgeous. They're so interesting. And what they do is show that God's will is good and excellent and beautiful and perfect and magnificent. So if you didn't have motivation to not be conformed, be motivated to be transformed because every thought of God, every truth of God is magnificent. It's perfect, right? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help us to love your word. Father, keep us from being conformed to this world. Help us to be a church that loves the imperative, a church that loves truth, and a church that is charitable and gentle and loving with those who oppose us because of their political commitments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.